passage, I can truly say that what has resulted from it is a greater love and delight in the Word of God. And we sung concerning Christ, who is the fountain. And I pray that each of us goes away uh, cherishing the Word of God, which is likened unto the rivers of living water. So the first psalm, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, it has been said that, like all good poetry, the Psalms are like a mine with ever new depths to reach and ever more gold to find. They reward abundantly whatever effort we make to know them better. And this first psalm is no doubt known by many here. Uh, this is most likely not the first time you've heard it spoken on. And it is very, very small in its makeup, but there's so much here for us to chew on and consider. My objective is simple tonight. I wish to just go through this, these six verses, present the sense and the tense, and ultimately we would be changed and conformed and would cherish the things that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ cherishes. One other commentator speaks of this psalm. He says it may not unfitly be entitled the Psalm of Psalms, for it contains in it the very pith and quintessence of Christianity. It is short as to the composure, but full of length and strength as to the matter. It begins where we all hope to end, firm ground on which the saints tread to glory. Its theme is as big as the whole Bible because it tells of people, paths, and ultimate destinations. This, this introductory psalm, this preface psalm, speaks of people, paths, and ultimate destinations in two ways that we are very familiar with. Uh, even the children uh, would be able to make this observation because they hear about it every single sun Sunday when they're in Sunday school class. There is an ethical separation and a judicial separation that is marked out in these six verses. Uh, we find the man who is blessed, this one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. He is described as being like this tree that we find in verse 3. We see righteousness on display. We then see on the other side of this ethical separation, the one who is not blessed, the one who is characterized by walking in the counsel of the ungodly, by standing in the way of sinners, by sitting in the seat of the scornful. And we also view as a result what is produced by both sides of this ethical separation in verses 3 and 4. But that's not all that we have. In verses 5 and 6, we have what would be called a judicial separation. Uh, now the end result is in view. God's verdict is before us. And we see sprouting forth what was sown before in the previous verses. So two different ways in which the Lord views and interacts with the righteous and the ungodly. And a good, if anybody's taking notes, a good parallel passage right beside this is Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8. It uses much of the same language when it comes to delighting in the law of the Lord. 
As we handle this text, we need to remember that many of the Psalms were Psalms of David. And there are many Psalms that don't have an author. We don't know who wrote them, but we know that most likely many of them might have not been written by David, but they were written for David or to David or about David. One can look at the first six, these six verses here in the first psalm and come to the conclusion that, that this is really the ideal for the monarch of Israel. So as we handle this portion, we, we need to remember that David is blessed positionally because of Psalm 32, his standing before God. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified is an eternal reality, not a dispensational one. Love and obedience to God is a basic human duty, intrinsic to human being, human uh, being a human, and Ecclesiastes 12 shows us this. But it doesn't justify. So as we go through these six verses, we see the life of blessedness. We have to understand that us doing things is not what justifies us. So here we are not dealing with positional blessing, but experiential blessedness. This will become evident as we go along. So as you jump into the first verse, the first word we see is a share, which is a, a masculine plural construct traditionally translated blessed. And the main sense here when you read this word is well-being in every area of life. My grandparents probably would have used this word very commonly when they were younger, this idea of blessedness. But it is not a word or a term that many in my own age range uh, would utilize on a daily basis. Um, this really here has the sense of being translated, how fortunate is the man, or, or happy is he. The idea of bliss is in view, that perfect happiness. This here is deep-seated joy and contentment. And this is the designation the one receives who is not characterized by the downward drag listed in verse 1, but is instead characterized by the contrast that we're going to find in verse 2. Now we find these, these three positions that the blessed man does not occupy. Walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. That first position, walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, is, is a Hebrew idiom for does not take the advice of. The blessed man does not take the advice of the ungodly. That's what is meant by the sense here of, of walking in the counsel of the ungodly. He is careful as to who influences him. And Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 to 18 would remind us, quote, Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. For they sleep not, except they have done mischief, and their sleep is taken away unless they cause some to fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is as a shining light or shining sun that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. So there's going to be three A's here that we're going to be looking at. The first one is, is the advice of the ungodly. The second is the action of the sinner. The next position that the blessed man does not occupy is standeth in the way of sinners. When you see this phrase, this refers to a lifestyle or the saying um, to keep in step with. Here we see that the blessed man does not mimic or adopt the behavior of sinners. Also, the idea of a supporter can be in view. Proverbs 1 and verse 10, verses 10 and 15 tells us, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. So we've had one who is under the advice of the ungodly. Then one then descends, because this is, this is a downward progression. One then descends into mimicking and copying the behavior of sinners. And finally, we have the attitude of the scornful. 
nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Here we have the attitude and the mindset that is established as a result of being influenced, of heeding the advice of the ungodly, and then adopting the actions of the sinners. This one now joins in and, in fact, becomes an authority figure in the mockery and blaspheming of God and his followers. As Charles Spurgeon could only say, quote, When men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. At first they merely walk in the counsel of the careless and ungodly who forget God. The evil is rather practical than habitual. But after that they become habituated to evil. And then they descend into standing in the way of open sinners who willfully violate God's commandments. And, if left alone, they go one step further and become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others. And thus they sit in the seat of the scornful. They've taken their degrees in vice, and as true doctors of damnation, they are installed and are looked up to by others as masters in Belial, end quote. Very intense language. But as we look at the first verse, we see that it is not just a lifestyle of sin, but it is this downward drag just getting worse and worse and worse. And sadly, we've known ones in our own spheres who have entered into all, uh, all three positions of this verse. Ones who have allowed themselves to fall under the influence and the counsel of the ungodly. And then moving into a lifestyle of mimicking and adopting the behavior of sinners. And then descending so far into their depravity that they themselves become authority figures and, and, and leaders in their circles of those who blaspheme and mock God. So where does the blessed man sit? Well, consider the opposite. We, we've considered those sitting, uh, walking in the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of the scornful. But what does the opposite look like? Maybe you can consider this local assembly. Consider, consider a, a, a younger one here, maybe one of the children, one, somebody who was saved at a young age. And they, they do not uh, come into a situation where they are falling or walking in the counsel of the ungodly, but they find themselves walking in the counsel of the godly. What a wonderful thing to have the advice and the influence of many godly individuals around them. And then how beautiful it would be if they then develop into a young person who begins to mimic and adopt, use the framework and what they see in front of them as how they gauge and carry out their own behavior. And then maybe one day develop into perhaps an elder, a leader in a local assembly, a Sunday school teacher, a well and a sister in themselves from which other people draw experience and wisdom from. Verse 1 shows us really the negative sense, but we can consider the positive sense and kind of be overwhelmed by the potential that we see. So the advice is not taken, the action is not adopted, and the attitude is not established. So verse 2a, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So we, now, we know what the blessed man doesn't concern himself with. We're now going to see what he does concern himself with. Psalm 112, verse 1 tells us, quote, Praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. So the blessed man, the truly happy man, we see what he doesn't concern himself with. We have before us what he does concern himself with. And here we find his true delight. And this delight, when you read this word, he delights in the law of the Lord. This is not just a delighting in a, a fleeting emotion, but this is delight fulfilled. This is his supreme joy. 
He finds the pinnacle of his existence, his highest purpose, his greatest meaning before him in the revealed word of God. The very air that this blessed man breathes is the word of God. He understands that by this he experiences true life. And the fullest life is only experienced in the light of this word, the Bible. And our Lord Jesus would remind Satan in that temptation confrontation, he would tell him that, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And that's Matthew 4 and 4. And at the time, this psalmist, what would compose the law, what would compose of God's word, wouldn't, wouldn't really be very much. It was perhaps maybe just the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So let us rejoice in the full canon that we have in our hands. That, that, that law, when he says delights in the law of the Lord, that doesn't simply mean just the Ten Commandments. But when you see the word the law, it simply refers to the revealed word of God at that point in time. And the blessed man delighted in all of it. So the question is, is the revealed God-breathed inspired word your supreme joy and delight? Do you feel personally, you yourself, like you are suffocating when you haven't had time to read it, to spend time absorbing it. It was not enough that the blessed man restricted and resisted those things in verse 1, but we see where his heart's life source, won, life source was. And this reminds us that one can live a life of checklists, making sure not to do A, B, and C without ever having delighted in the sacred scriptures. I'll say that again. You can live a life of checklists, don't do this, do this, don't do this, and you will have never once enjoyed the word of God for yourself. We need to saturate ourselves in the word daily. And 1 John 5 and 3 tells us his commandments are not burdensome. Satan would have you believe that subscribing and submitting to the word of God is a restrictive, a burdensome, a quality of life reducing thing. He says things like, don't listen to what God has to say. Your life will be so boring. You'll be miserable. You won't know what it will be like to truly live life to the fullest if you submit to God's word. When in actuality, the way of the devil is enslaving, it is binding, it is miserable, and it is burdensome. Satan has no interest in enhancing and enriching your life. The facade may be dressed as such, but ultimately it's nothing but despair and depravity. The fullest life, the greatest joy, the truly happy, not the perverted and poisoned happy that the world force feeds us, but the truly happy life, the life you were meant for, can only be experienced by delighting in finding your supreme joy in God's word. Anything short of that is some cheap, no-name knockoff that will leave you thirsty at the end of the day. Verse 2b, the next section, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So we know what the blessed man doesn't concern himself with. We know what he truly delights in. We know that he has that state of well-being in every area of his life because his life is rooted in that one thing that does not change and is timeless. But now we're going to learn something about how he interacts with the law that he delights in. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. Meditate here is not necessarily in the sense that we may interpret it through our North American lens. 
The idea here isn't just sitting in silence or emptying one's mind. In fact, what we're interested with here is a filling up of the mind. This is a multifaceted verb because in biblical culture, this meant reciting or murmuring the text to oneself out loud. Of course, this wasn't a mindless activity, but an activity that engaged the mind for this verb also means devise, muse, imagine. So there was both an outward and an inward activity when it came to interacting with the word of God. Both were linked to each other and the object focus was God's law, his word. We then see day and night here. And once again, biblical culture would show us that there were purposeful routines and regimens implemented into the lives of God's people. This meditating was a very serious thing. And you may ask, is this saying that I have to meditate all day and all night? Is this what the, is this what the passage is saying? No, we're not hermits nor do we believe in some sort of false holiness that people associate with hiding yourself away in a cave or in a tower. That's false. But as image bearers, we have responsibilities in daily life that God would not have us ignore. So what does it mean? Well, the idea here is daily and nightly. That's what the idea here is. And I believe this points us to the concept of starting out our day with and ending our day with the word of God. The tenor and tone of our day is to be established and stabilized with time spent in the Lord's presence, considering the Lord's word. And you may say, well, that, that sounds legalistic. Telling me I need to spend time meditating. That's legalistic. No, it's realistic. As we read God's word, the Lord has always meant for his people to give his word a place of preeminence in the lives he has given them. We say things um, like, I don't like to read. I'm not a reader. Okay, fair. Except that would hold weight if what we were holding in our hands was just a book. And it's not. The Godhead who said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. The one who fashioned you in your mother's womb and gave you life. The one who saved you and redeemed you to himself when your sin was catapulting you to hell has spoken. Everything that he could possibly wish for you to know while you are sojourning through life is here in his word. God breathed. God inspired. This is essentially him talking to you. The question is, would you like to know what he wants to say to you? That is the question that the Bible begs from us. This is my word. Do you want to know what I'm saying to you? It's here in its fullness. We then move into verse 3. We now learn what comes as a result of this delight and this meditation and this withdrawing of the things of verse 1. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, or its season. His life, sorry, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So there's a ton in this verse. It's fantastic. That you could spend you could spend days just focusing on this verse alone. This blessed man, this life of blessedness, this life of the fullest joy and happiness is likened onto a tree, a tree that is planted, and the idea of transplanting is in view. So this isn't a new tree being planted. The idea here is the tree has already been in existence. It is now dwelling where it was always meant to dwell 
and feeding on what it was always meant to feed on. If we understand that the idea here is transplanting, then we understand that we ourselves did not, we did not plant ourselves by the rivers of water, but we have been planted by God in the place of nourishment and refreshment. And we need to re remind ourselves of that daily. If there's any desire in me to study the word of God, if there's any desire in me to meditate on the word of God, if there's any desire in me to carry out the word of God in my life, I need to realize that that did not originate with me whatsoever, but that was imparted and imputed to me by the new life that the Lord Jesus Christ has instilled in me. So, where does this tree reside? We now see by the rivers of water. It is planted in a place of nourishment and refreshment. This blessed one who is delighting in the Lord's revealed word and meditated, meditating on it daily and nightly is shown to us as a tree planted exactly where it should be planted and feeding exactly on what it should be feeding on. It's so sad to read a verse like Jeremiah 2 and 13, which says, quote, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn, hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. But then on the positive side, we read of our Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, quote, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirst... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This theme runs throughout scripture. That anything short of the Lord and his word is a dry, destitute, and depraved condition. We cannot hew out for ourselves cisterns. There is a river of living water that only the Lord provides. And it is the river of living water that our roots need to be down into. So, from the Lord and the Lord alone flows those rivers of living water. And the blessed one is shown here with his roots drawing forth from the rivers of water. So what happens then? What happens then when our roots run deep into the word of God? What happens when I saturate myself in it? Absorb it. Suck up the water of the word. Well, we see what happens as we continue through verse 3. That bringeth forth his fruit, or its, because of the tree metaphor, in his season. So what to make of this fruit language we're now seeing? Well, we have plenty of areas in scripture where the Lord, where the Lord uses this imagery of, of, of trees, of branches, of fruit. Uh, John 15, 1 to 6, a section that I'm sure most of us have heard ministry on before, talking about uh, the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ, the vine dresser, the Father, and how we are to abide in Christ, and that we cannot bear any fruit unless we abide in Christ and he in us. Galatians 5 and 22, which talks about that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Or Hebrews 12 and 11, which says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And there are, there are a whole host of other verses and sections that, that this imagery of a tree bearing fruit is used to get the point across. So what are we looking at here then regarding fruit? Well, this is what the blessed man now produces in his life. This is the result of the nourishment, of the refreshment. And this is a concept that we're familiar with. But it's not only that the tree produces fruit, but it produces fruit in his season. Willie MacDonald plainly states, 
quote, he displays the graces of the spirit and his words and actions are always timely and appropriate. Spurgeon elaborates on this point in his Treasury of David when he says, quote, but the man who delights in God's word being taught by it bringeth forth patience in time of suffering, faith in the day of trial, and holy joy in the hour of prosperity. So this fruit is appropriate. This fruit that is produced is timely because its root is drawing forth from that which is timeless. As we look at the word of God, we realize the fact that our world is characterized by change and by time. But the only thing in this world that is not characterized by change and time is the word of God, that is, which is changeless and timeless. This is fantastic. Next we see his leaf also shall not wither. So the imagery continues to be used. What does it mean? Where else do we see this? Isaiah 64 and 6 tells us, quote, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Or remember when Daniel was interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He would continue to use uh, these words as metaphors and imagery to help get the point across to Nebuchadnezzar. He would say, quote, the tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant. And then in verse 22, um, Daniel lets Nebuchadnezzar know, it is you, O king. And then it gets a little shaky for Nebuchadnezzar uh, as you go along. Or how about Proverbs 11 and 28? He who trusts in, the Lord, in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage or leafage. So the leaf, the foliage, does not wither. There is sustaining, enduring life to it. Why? Because it feeds on that which cannot die. Matthew 24 and 35 reminds us of a verse we all are very familiar with, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. MacDonald quotes Moody saying, quote, all of the Lord's trees are evergreen, end quote. So the idea is that tree that retains its greenery year round despite the elements and despite the conditions. This blessed man has a joy that's not based on circumstances or situations, but a joy rooted in that which is the only thing in this world that does not change and will not die. Next, we have the next phrase, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. What an incredible reality. This is not uh, the so-called prosperity gospel that we see enslaving millions of people, uh, duping them into thinking uh, that if I just do the right things, if I keep away from the wrong things, uh, that God will give me a wonderful life with no difficulty, disease, or disappointment. Um, we abominate that. That's false. It's, it's incorrect. Um, here we are not concerned with some sort of outward prosperity, but it's the inward reality that we have to do with. That which is done for the Lord, based upon the word of the Lord, will have the blessing of the Lord. And that blessing has eternal weight and value. Even if we cannot visibly see said blessing, it is there. So the things that he doeth will be characterized by what he delights in, the law of the Lord, and the frequency of said delight, day and night, or daily and nightly. Even the activities of day-to-day -day life, like employment and academics, 
can have a prosperity associated with it because the blessed man will conduct himself in such as one saturated with and shaped by what he delights in, what his supreme joy is, which is the law of the Lord, the word of God. Even the trials and the turbulent times of life can have a measure of prosperity to it. Why? Because ultimately what shapes us and defines us is not our experiences, is not our circumstances, it is not our situations, but what ultimately shapes and defines us is the person, work, and word of our Lord. I have to once again quote Spurgeon because he continues to hit the nail on the head when he says, quote, our worst things are often our best things. As there is a curse wrapped up in the wicked man's mercies, so there is a blessing concealed in the righteous man's crosses, losses, and sorrows. The trials of the saint can often be a divine husbandry by which he grows and brings forth abundant fruit, end quote. So we've considered that blessed man, that life of blessedness, that life of real joy. That's why we reject whenever somebody says, well, the Christian life isn't about being happy. The fleeting emotion happy, I get that. But the Lord is very concerned with you having a life that overflows with the joy that comes with delighting in his word. To say that being a Christian has nothing to do with joy and happiness is an absolute falsehood. The Lord is very interested with you having a life that knows what real joy, real contentedness really is. And that will suffice for verse 3. Verse 4, we're now moving into the contrast. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Very interesting that when we read of chaff throughout Scripture, we read of it as something being tossed in the fire and burned. Here we read of it as something that is blown away by the wind. So instead of being likened onto the lush, vibrant, full tree of verse 3, we see here something utterly dead and useless. This is what is produced in the life of the one who embraces what is contained in verse 1, that which the blessed man withdraws himself from. Chaff is the husk, it is the leftover, it is the stubble that is only good for casting away and burning. And this is such a sad scene. This is essentially what Satan has to offer you. He puts a nice, a pretty dress on it, but this is what he has to offer you. Utter pointlessness, utter uselessness. Chaff that is driven about by the wind. It's driven about by the wind because it's unstable. It does not have roots anywhere. It's without substance. It is dry, it is dead, no roots, no life, no joy. And before we point fingers at other people's lives, we each are reminded that there was a time in our life where we were dead in the sight of God. Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even like we were when we were a husk, a piece of chaff, useless, dead, with no life within us, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So we understand that the Lord has given us life positionally. And once again, we realize that, that yes, he has given us life positionally, but there we are to be enjoying a progressive enjoyment of that life as we grow in the Lord. And that comes only by the nourishment and the refreshment of the word. 
Verse 5 tells us, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So we, of course, know that, that we will all appear before God. Some will be able to stand. Some will not be able to stand. Those who are able to stand will do so by no strength of their own, but only through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sense here is that the ungodly will be found guilty. So now the judicial separation is in view. This is hell and the lake of fire for all of eternity, never ending. But hell is not only characterized as a place that facilitates punishment for the ungodly, but it is a place characterized by separation. Separation from the congregation of the righteous, that heavenly abode, that place of blessing, a separation from God himself. And as I consider this concept of complete separation from communion with God, this strikes more fear into me than just the thought of being punished. This is essentially the epitome of punishment, separation from God, not for a temporary amount of time, Purgatory is not correct doctrine, it's incorrect. But forever, that is the epitome of punishment and depravity, being separated from God with no hope. And being on the other side of that door, as he tells you, I never knew you. But there's something more in view here. We then move into our last and final verse, where it says, For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. But the way of the ungodly shall perish. What we first need to realize is that what's in view in this verse is not only positional blessing, but is experiential blessing. It is life's course. The Lord knoweth. This points to something more than just recognition or awareness. This is intimacy. This is involvement. A special acknowledgement and interest in the way of the righteous. We now see this path imagery being used, and we see this all throughout Scripture. Psalm 37 and verse 8 says, The Lord knows the day, or the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall last forever. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translation uses the idea of, quote, The Lord watches over the blameless. Nahum 1 and verse 7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. John 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. So there is the involvement of the Lord with the righteous, both positionally preserving them for that final glorification and experientially through life, sustaining and nourishing them on their pilgrim's progress. So we understand here that as we read of the way of the righteous and the way of the ungodly, we're not now only to think of just somebody either being in heaven or in hell, but we consider the whole course of their life. God looks at the one who is trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and lives a life delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating upon it. He looks at that one, he acknowledges that one, he supports that one, and will sustain that one. He's intimate, he's involved. He's interested. But then how sad it is to look at the contrasts here. But the way of the ungodly shall perish. That ruinous end result for the ungodly when the Lord comes. But it is not just the place where the ungodly will spend all of eternity. But 
their whole life is in view. All that they lived for, all that they endorsed, all that they themselves delighted in was absolutely pointless and useless. It's like chaff floating about on the wind with no other purpose but to be thrown in the furnace and torched. How sad. How sad it will, it will be for, for ones to sit in hell for all of eternity and not only consider that they rejected their creator, but they had nothing to show for the life that they lived. That is such a sad scene. And as we look at these six verses, the Lord is saying that this is where true joy, true happiness, true peace, true rest is found. And in a world, that I've already said this, in a world that is characterized by change, by time, by death, the only thing that doesn't change, the only thing that, that is not affected by time, the only thing that does not die is the Lord's word. Why on earth? Are you not rooted in it? Anything short of cherishing the word of the Lord is death. It is dryness. And the Lord is so interested in you learning what he has to say to you here. Yes, he wants you to, to withdraw from the way of, of, of the ungodly. He doesn't want you to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't want you to stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't want you to sit in the seat of the scornful. But he also wants your supreme joy to be in himself. We sang at the beginning of the meeting, O Christ, he is the fountain. And his word is likened onto rivers of living water. If I have one hope, I think one of the things I enjoy most is just talking to people about the Bible and the messages I love giving the most are just ones that call people to just almost hug their Bible, just cling to it. Like there is nothing else that fulfills them, that fills them with purpose, that fills them with meaning. Here is life. Here is refreshment and nourishment. And now as we move into the prayer meeting session, may we just rejoice in the fact that God has nothing more to add to his word, that it is complete, that it is here, and it's here for you to swim in and saturate yourself with on a daily basis. May the Lord bless the reading of his word.